Welcome to Superlative. I am your podcast host, Ariel Adams. In each episode, you will meet someone who has inspired or takes inspiration from today's wristwatch industry. Every week, let's dive deep into the world of crafting exotic timepieces from the people who dream them up to the people who dream of them. It's time to get started and meet today's guest. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mitchell Wine. He is the president of Marathon Watch. Mitchell, welcome. Hey, Ariel. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I've wanted to have you on the Superlative Podcast for a while, mainly because every single time we chat and you get into storytelling mode, you tell me things that I feel that other people need to know about when it comes to the watch industry. You agree. You're sort of an encyclopedia of watch industry knowledge, aren't you? Isn't that horrible? Well, I mean, there could be worse things to be known for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I was thinking about, uh, actually, I was thinking about today. It's like, you know, I have a lot of stories, but, you know, there, there, there's different things you do in your life. Uh, and one of the things I, I like is uh, viewing uh, modernist art and going to the galleries and Sure. Checking out to see what's happening and why I think certain paintings are good investments and why some are not. And, you, you know, I was thinking about that. I learned that from my dad, really. And uh, I also learned from my dad many things in the watch industry. And he learned things from his father. But on a separate note, it's like, I learned even about the stock market through my father. And my father learned the stock market through his mother, who, like, she was the mind, of the investment mind in the family. In those days, you know, I guess uh, a lot of women, people didn't respect women's uh, ideas and thoughts, but my grandmother was as brilliant as any man or even more to understand how to read financial statements in the 1940s. So, uh that knowledge is passed down from generation to generation. And I'm trying to teach my staff right now from what I know from before, what, what you learn, what you learn in producing a watch. Um, what do you look at in a stock? You know, what do you look at how, what, whether it's a wise investment in a stock or not? Um, especially, with the probabilities of what interest rates may be, so the cost of investment. So just the other day, we were having a meeting about, well, actually, I don't know if it's confidential, and maybe someone will kill me in my company, but I don't think so. It, it, it was analyzing the tolerances on the bandwars. So, you know, on the dials, we want to make it even stronger to shock than the spec calls for. And so we're analyzing the different types of glues. And I and I and I and I and I said and I felt that I learned from the business is the tolerances are so important that if the banwar, which is I don't know how to say that in English, the banwar is the the bath, the area where it's stamped out, it's, it's milled out so we could put in a special uh, paint and then a special type of glue to adhere the tubes. Now, the tubes are cut and the tolerances tritium are a certain amount with the tritium gas tubes, yeah. And uh, it's, it's best always to make sure the fit isn't too snug. So you have to allow for that. But we also have to allow for... In the past, we have to allow for irregularities like the thickness of the um, glue and the flexibility of the glue, so the shock won't it won't disconnect the the shock won't uh, disconnect so the tube from the dial, and so let's let's make sure the tolerances are high enough because we're designing a new dial for a new project. And I just want to make sure that the materials we're using and the way we use the materials, we have to check every little detail. And the other day we had a discussion about our rubber straps. So our our, our rubber straps are snug 
to the 20 millimeter opening of uh, the watch. And <clears throat> there was discussions about making it a, it, it, the reason why it's snug is because I make my openings 19.8 millimeters. I, I learned that from my father. You never want to have a watch strap that has room to play on either side. It looks ill-fitting. You know what I mean? It's, it's sort of wearing like a, a pair of pants and it's not tight fitting your pants. It has to be nice fitting. And if you do... If you open up our, if if we would change the design of our navigator in steel to have a 20 millimeter lug and we have the 20 millimeter strap, it might seem a bit, bit loose and we want it snug. The reason, and I learned that from my dad always talking about when he used to buy these leather straps. We used to have leather straps made in England and, uh, Actually, there's a French company. There's many companies in the olden days that used to make straps, especially one that was our main supplier called Stylecraft in Montreal. And they used to sew the straps so beautifully, I remember. And uh, it was always make sure the case fits that strap snugly. And, I'm seeing uh, a new concept for you, Mitchell, a podcast series called Low Tolerance. Yeah, I know. I'm horrible. You I'm, just talk about... No, you just talk just about... just me and the dog. Everything related to watches and low tolerance. No, I, I began by, you know, giving the opportunity to show that you're an encyclopedia and absolutely talking about the minutia of tolerances all over a watch and inside of it is is part of that because you, as you should be as a multi-generational watch company owner, are obsessed with manufacturing good watches, right? Yeah, and you don't want something to break in the field. Could you imagine if you had a son and, and, and one... And he was in the army. <laughs> yeah, I know, but he's not in the army or not in defense or even in, in a special operation. And one of his uh, instruments would fail. That'd be terrible. I certainly don't want that on any of my 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 family's wrists when we are out. You know, my my nephew Noah, he. He, he actually was in Afghanistan on two rounds with the Department of the Army for the U.S. government. He's American. And, you know, I made sure I gave him a watch because I didn't, I wanted to make sure, even if he wasn't issued it, that he had a watch that he could depend on. So we got, we got to get to that because we haven't even established for many listeners that Marathon is this, well, I guess it's an exception these days, but there's all these companies that make quote-unquote military watches as far as I know, you are really the only company that produces a watch that's actually issued by a military to soldiers. Talk a little bit about that. By our military. And by well, the, not, yeah, you know, not, the not all militaries. And, not yeah. all militaries, of course. No. So talk talk about being a military supplier. How how did you know talk about that history for Marathon and how how have you maintained the relationship as a military supplier when pretty much no other watch brand has that? They may be worn by soldiers, they may be sold to soldiers, but actually issued by governments to specialized people. How, how have you created and maintained that relationship? You know how it's by by ensuring that we give the lowest qualified price on the product that's called out for. Meaning, if a spec calls out for a certain quality and different uh, measurements on a, on a device and any instrument, whether it be a hammer or even, you know, uh, a machine gun or, or a watch, um, the nice thing about working with government is that working with government is fair and they respect quality and price and compliance and where the product is manufactured and who's making it. And once you meet all those requirements, um, once you meet all those requirements and you can, you know, sell on time and deliver on time and really maintain the warfighter or you could maintain 
you know, such as other departments where the geological survey for stopwatches. We just have to make things that don't fail at a properly priced, lowest qualified price, because it is the taxpayer who foots the bill no matter which country you're in, whether you're in Germany or England or Canada or Israel, the United States, in countries which have proper bidding systems, you could be, you know, it's guaranteed that the taxpayer foots the bill, of course, for its, the, uh, their, their federal departments. And, uh, I feel as a taxpayer myself, I uh, I want to get value for our money, and 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 you know what? The on specifications, uh, I think the four six three seven four spec calls out that the lifespan must be up to five. You know, a guaranteed lifespan for uh, five years, or it could be a disposable watch that has to be disposed of in two years, um, but. Um, uh, I'm going to tell you, uh, I am the taxpayer, and I'm very proud of the fact that uh, the lifespans of our watches last, uh, on average, way more, I know, than 10 years, and uh, governments are using watches that they had an inventory or that have been used for so many years. There's many, many people who were issued watches um, or purchased watches, because um, issue watches have to go back in Canada, the United States, to the uh, issuer once you leave as part of your uniform. You don't take your uniform with you, but the, uh, what is it? The watches are returned after duty. The watches are returned after duty, but we have people that buy our products from different, you know, vendors or dealers such as... Uh, you know, I, I won't, I don't want to specify any specific dealer because it's not fair. So ABC sure, company, sure. which doesn't exist. I, and, uh, but, or you buy from us and, and we get watches in our service department for a clean. People don't even want a new dial, even though the dial is 20 years old. They want to keep everything original, but the movement's working perfectly. The water resistance is great. And they've had no problems for 20 years. And some of these watches are really, gone through battle or gone through God knows what. And uh, we're, we're very happy to see that watches continue in service and that people have gotten their money's worth in a watch. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not frugal, but I, 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 I'm a very practical. When I buy a car, I, I figure out, okay, so I'm going to keep the car for 10 years. If the car costs 30000 or $40,000, it'll be $4,000 a year. And what's the cost of money? $4,000 a year. What's the value of the car? But if I could have a, if you have to buy a car that's 20,000, let's say over five years, you know, or like, you know, you know what I mean? So, it, yeah. it, so when you buy a marathon watch, let's say you bought a marathon watch years ago for, let's say, I don't know, uh, 10 years ago, $4,000. was it, uh, you know, $100 a year, and still you have the value of the watch. It doesn't go down. So imagine that return value when you trade in a car or when you trade in a watch. Not that you're going to trade in a yeah. watch. So, so let's, let's, go, let's go back to the original question of the being a military supplier. It sounds like decades of being adept at the requisition process is the mentality required to be successful in that endeavor, meaning that you know you need to play the government game and you have to have your values in the right place. Otherwise, there isn't going to be a, a, a meeting between what a government requisition process needs and what a modern watch brand wants to do. True, true. And, and you know what? When you work with government, you could... Well, when you're a sole source or things like that, but also, you know, when you work with government, you should be working on the lowest margin possible, more than anybody else, because who are you supporting? You're supporting your democracy. Even if you're supporting an allied country, which happens to be, let's say, the UK, not Canada, or, or let's say we're supporting Colombia in South America, they are an ally of the United States or any NATO ally from the North. Uh, we have to be cognizant of the fact that democracy is very fragile, as we've seen of late. 
and that uh, I believe I don't. I'm not a believer in small government. I'm a believer not either in big government, but responsible government. And being responsible to the government is where it actually starts. So, but these the types of things you're saying are kind of in contrast to the traditional, or I guess you could say the typical business mindset of a company in the luxury industry. At what point did you recognize that your, you know, your legacy family company that makes, among so other you things... you want to know what is good about the government? Sure. Tell me. Uh, working with the military, there's no smoke and mirrors. There's no bullshit. Oh, there's a They're lot of that in the luxury facts, industry. You know? <laughs> yeah, you know what? You, you, you're your purchaser, like, you're getting purchase orders or contracts based on what you're supplying and you have to prove it. You know, just because, I'll, I'll tell you what, just because a movie star is wearing something doesn't mean it's good. No. But if somebody that is in charge of a tank division having a marathon field watch and he wears that on top of his uniform you know what, the reason why he's wearing it is because it is going to take a dusty beating and maybe a wet one too and a lot of shock, but he could depend on it. And that that's something more to be proud of. I sure, mean, some sure. people are more proud of their bank accounts than what they could do with that bank account and help other people. I'm seeing a lot of, you know, it, it's, you know, there's a, a, I think too much emphasis has been made on the look at me culture that has happened through social media. Not that I'm knocking down social media. I I I, I actually go on Facebook not too often. I'm not that good at it. But <laughs> you know, it's I, I, I think it's I, I, good to show what you could actually do. Well it's a good segue you know? to my 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 question I was getting at, which relates to the luxury industry, whereas your family's business of making watches, tool watches, collided with the luxury industry at one point or another, meaning you realize you are now not just being a military supplier, but to sell watches to consumers. And I want you to remind uh, folks what your marathon actually started selling watches to uh, lay people, not just uh, within uh, certain, you know, I guess you could say professional um, contexts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but talk a little bit about that intersection of what your company has done for so long and the luxury industry within which you work, at least partially. Do you know what? You know when I realized that I really enjoyed working with government? I mean, I heard about it from my dad and everything. My dad used to take me on meetings. You know, when I had the day off from school, sometimes actually he would have meetings in Ottawa and he would take me for these meetings. And sometimes we'd have meetings in... Uh, in an embassy in Ottawa or a trade office and, you know, with foreign governments because that's what you did, I guess, in those days. And when I grew up, the Canadian government, we, we were supplying the Canadian government with a dive watch. And the factory that made the cases, we were buying the cases from a, a manufacturer, I think it was in France, uh, of these dive cases. And the dive cases the company said the tool broke. And so they want us to spend all this money in participation to remake a tool because we were one of the few companies that used that case, if any. And I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. Why would I make something again that looks so similar to other brands, whereas I really don't care what it looks like, I really need to make the soldiers happy. The more that the soldiers are happy, the more that governments will want our watches. And it was the Canadian government buying a lot of search and rescue watches in those days. And I had a friend who was in the military out east and uh, had some friends at the Dansville Air Force Base, which is right here in Toronto. My friend out east, Maybe you could get a few friends together and we could discuss this. I have to make, you know, he knows I was in the watch business. I talked about it, uh, about the dive watch. And he knew what the dive watch looked like. And I said, what, 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 what don't you like about it? When they told me what they didn't like about it was because it's really cold and turning the turning bezel. It was just, if, if we could make it a bit bigger, 
it would be better. Also, if uh, we could increase the water resistance, uh, because in those days, I think it was only 200 meters. And okay, that's then, practical. Uh, there was a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of different things that they uh, wanted out of that instrument. And uh, I went to the drawing board. Um, I, I, I spoke with Jean Rees, and you know, you know me. Like yeah, I could take the back of a of an envelope, and you know, or a napkin. And I, I've done some designs on napkins, so you have to make sure to take them before you go to a restaurant, leave a restaurant. So the thing is, it was I, I, I did it, and then Jean Rees is very uh, handy, and he. He drew it with his his writing instruments, and uh, I remember a few people showed it to this. It's so ugly. And then some guy said to me, "It was so funny. It stuck in my mind." He said, "You know, Mitchell, it looks like a potato." <laughs> I, I I I had a few friends in the military show them the design. They said, "Yeah." And, you know, the idea of having those not fine notches, but big notches spaced out enough. So if you're wearing these insulated mesh gloves or gloves, you could turn the bezel much easier. And and, and the fact is to dr- drill out the drill out the bezel insert and paint it with heavy, thick paint with a base it, you'll be able to see the zero to sixty much faster because it'll be more, in, you know, indelible. And, and also, I, I, you know, with the other case manufacturer, I remember that, you know, after years, maybe the numbers would wear off, and that's not a good thing. Because, like, what, what do you expect these people to do? Send it in to get a new bezel after right. just a few years? It's not right. And uh, I, I thought we would up the game, make a watch sell a lot of them and not get any returns because the quality would be good. And we did that. And you know what? It's really amazing. It's not the dollar value, but when someone says, I love your watches, I they, they've traveled a, a journey with me to Afghanistan or to Iraq or to wherever they were, to Bosnia even in those days. You know, that, that means something. Hi, this is Ariel Adams, founder of A Blog to Watch, with a message about eBay. I visit eBay daily and have been relying on eBay to learn about and acquire watches for more than 20 years. Did you know that you can now buy watches directly from brands or their authorized dealers on eBay? Timepieces coveted by watch enthusiasts from brands like Zodiac, Loco, Parallel, and more are part of eBay's Certified by Brand program. Here's how it works. Luxury Names are partnering with eBay to bring brand new and pre-owned watches and other luxury accessories directly to you. Certified by Brand includes a minimum one-year factory warranty for watches and offers an unprecedented selection of new and used watches directly from the source, all with the peace of mind you can expect from eBay. Visit ebay.com slash certified by brand for more information. So I want to go back to the question of when did Marathon begin selling watches to consumers? As a company, depending on how you categorize, it's been around for about a, over 100 years. When did you start selling to the general public? So there were different phases of in different generations of the company. So back in when, before Marathon was Weinstrom Watch and uh, my uncle Alex, my father's uncle Alex, my grandfather's brother, oldest brother, lived in New York, and he started Weinstrom Watch. And, he, you know, the different brothers worked for him, and uh, Brilliant's idea was to have a brother in each major city. But uh, the brothers eventually didn't get along, and I think one of the first brothers to leave, Alex, was a brother named uh, Hyman, who's my cousin Joe's uh, grandfather. And uh, he moved to Chicago, and uh, he, he he started a Clinton Watch and Hampton Watch they own, and and uh, my grandfather left the brothers in 1939, and it was Morris Ween Watch, and he carried his own brand called Marathon Watches. Of course, we had 
one other brother outside of Geneva, my uh, grandfather's uh, brother Monia, and he arranged the manufacturing of wristwatches for the whole family. And, you know, uh, I just saw my cousin Joe, and we were looking at some of the old collections from the 1950s and 40s, and we had the identical watches, but with different trademarks on it. But it was still from the same family because my uncle Monia in uh, Switzerland made sure that we got the cases and the dials and hands and would do the assemblies in our respective countries, either Canada or the United States. And what happened with my grandfather was he, he was fortunate enough to be in the, you know, nothing's by coincidence in life. And he was in the right place at the right time and knew, you know, the war was starting, Canada was entering the war under England and uh, the War Department was, we were in downtown Montreal and we had a building, 407 McGill. And uh, I think the War Department was on the first floor and uh, they had a requirement, an advertised requirement for wristwatches and my grandfather uh, bid on it and uh, immediately uh, he started learning about the different regulations of making watches for the government including uh, special radium on the dials and canning the watches and the Canadian government would take delivery of the watches and send it overseas. I think it was in a base in Italy, um, my dad tells me. And uh, as a matter of fact, when I was in Italy, I found an old marathon watch. It was given to me, um, restored from, I guess, one soldier that left it back there. But there's quite a few marathon watches in Italy. And uh, we went into wartime production with, war, you know, more wartime-looking watches. Uh, but after the war, uh, I think business went down quite a bit. My grandfather had a lot of competition, but he was also the distributor for other brands such as Doxa. We're exclusive distributors for Doxa and uh, Breitling and a, a few other famous brands that we represented families from Le Chaudfond. Sure. Which is our town in uh, Switzerland, and uh, in the nineteen, uh, we always supplied watches to government from then on under contract, uh, under a bid and request basis. And uh, my father uh, felt we made a very good product, and the U.S. government was overpaying. <laughs> On, uh, he felt he was, uh, they were overpaying because there was no competition in the United States for uh, the general purpose uh, wristwatches. Do you remember those? I think it's the GGW 113 or something like that. It was a spec in the 1970s. Yeah, there's some collectors that go crazy for that stuff. Yeah, you know what? That's what I based my officer's watch out of, is the original ones my dad issued in the 70s. So it's based on that with an improvement. But cool. I, I, I do, uh, and what I did was when I, when I uh, designed that case, Ariel, I made sure that when you look at the opposite side of the uh, crown, not at the nine o'clock uh, part of the case, you're going to see wings. And I, it's not really part of the spec, but I brought back in those original wings that my dad did for the GGW 113. And, and, and it's just like uh, a little bit of history and, you know, there things are, are instruments, but in their little ways, they could be beautiful. You know, it's sort of, it's sort of like if you have a beautiful painting, you really don't need an elaborate frame. It could be just a simple black frame. So let, so let me, look, I got, I got to unpack that because again, there's this two sort of coalescing sides to you. There's the sort of supplier of the most affordable, best quality item to the government, and then this art aficionado that also wants to make those things nice. And I see these two parallel paths that together have made sure that the watches you make today satisfy both of those needs, the, the government need and the, you know, the, the aesthetic need. Of course. You know, I, I uh, know some manufacturers of different uniforms for different militaries. And even a, a, a uniform could be cut really nicely and have ha, have gusseted pockets and 
and, and, and different flaps that instead of are just straight across could be at a slight angle because what, what, why shouldn't a soldier have a nice uniform? And why should a soldier have a watch that performs the p- function but is as nice? Because don't forget, you have to meet the function, but it should look nice. You know, when, when you have a pallet, you know, we, we design uh, packaging for our orological instruments. The packaging can be just a plain paper box with a little sticker, and that's it. But if, a, if you could just put on that sticker something that has a picture and someone could understand what's going into that package much easier, it doesn't cost much money to just tell the story correctly through the way it looks. And I believe that there you could have a watch case or a watch design that actually doesn't have a curve to it. Our field watches are that, but we did it that for the strength. But there's a slight curve on our field watch such that nothing could get caught at angles from your shirt or there's has to have some little bit of appeal to it. It can't be like a monoblock that is uh, at 90-degree angles. You have to take the angles down at the edges where it reaches out to the uh, strap opening at, at a slight angle of at least 15 degrees. So so function leads to form. So you don't, you don't set out to make them pretty, but the process of making them useful and elegant ends up making them pretty. Like a tank, you know, even a tank, you have to have some angles. You could, you could adjust a car to have some, something that is a script of being nice to go with a uniform, being nice, uh, you know, that goes like our Monte Carlo watches. We used to supply them for the Harrier aircraft. And, you know, we didn't have to do the nice finish on the case to be uh, sort of like a sparkling matte uh, parkerized finish. It could have been brushed steel like other manufacturers, but give it that extra touch. It makes it look nicer. You know what I mean? It'll match the, match the dashboard. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad that it worked out that way. Yeah. The only thing we had problem with the, you know, we once had a problem with a contract on Monte Carlo stopwatches. What happened was when one aircraft, we, we had enough space to put the pusher on the right-hand side. When we delivered them to another army, didn't realize that it was in another section of their canopies, of their canopy, the canopy section in the aircraft. And the button had to be switched to the left-hand side. We had to take them all back take apart all these watches and re-drill and put on another pusher. And we had to uh, make new cases, new outer rings for the cases to allow for the left-hand pusher instead of the right-hand pusher. How interesting. And, uh, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, you know, that's why you, that's why you have to double-check things. Always double-check. So in recent times, when did you, again, because I, I think it was about 10 years ago or so, but when did you, open up shop where people, regular watch lovers, could buy directly from you? Because my understanding is that, at least in recent times, that historically has not been possible. I couldn't just go to the Marathon website and buy uh, a GSAR. No, you actually couldn't buy a Marathon watch anywhere. My father made that decision. He, he just said, you know what, when, when you get met, when, when you sell a watch, you're married to the customer. And my father was very wary about selling to jewelry stores because jewelry stores in the past had, you know, many of them had reputations of not paying their bills or not paying on time. And he didn't want to have anything to do with the jewelry store. You know what? You work on very low margin. You sell to the government. You're guaranteed to be paid as long as everything meets standards and, you know, everything is checked and uh, examined and working. Yeah, and uh, it, it just was not, uh, I'll tell you, it, it just was much more noble to sell to an account such as the government. It was something my father was so proud of, and I, I'm so proud of, 
that, you know, our quality meets government standards. But also, I'm very proud that people, you know, really tell us about the journeys they've been on with their watches and where they where that watch has come into use at a very important time in their lives. Where do you take it from here in terms of development and innovation? I mean, you're going to continue to make mechanical and quartz watches. You've just come out with some great high accuracy quartz watches. But in terms of your own personal mission to make the, you know, the, the field watch or the military watch better, where do you want to take it uh, technically? Well, technically, I want to increase our tolerances. Wow, I didn't pre- didn't think about that, but that makes sense <laughs> for you. <laughs> so, so <laughs> accuracy is very important, but also shock resistance is extremely important. That's why we use inca block shock absorbers in our movements. But can we do it better? People say no, but I think we could. I, I, I think there's a lot of things we could do better, and if I said that it's the best, I'd be, you know, bullshitting everybody. What we've done with the Navigator, I realize, we we took the Navigator my dad developed 40 years ago uh, for Kelly uh, Air Force Base. And with the materials available today, as compared to many years ago, we were really able to improve the case quality. I felt that wasn't enough. We worked with MB Microtech, who's the manufacturer of the tubes for our mill spec watches, of these special tubes that we procure for our watches. Um, we were able to have a whole discussion and studies and meetings about the tube and the turning bezel and how we're going to position and how we're going to protect that tube and the testing that's going to have to be done before we can even make a sample uh, of the watch to test with the tube. It's just, and how are we going to place that tube within the special bezel insert? What are we going to use? Are we going to use silver for 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 uh, the holder? Is it going to be mineral glass or sapphire for the protective cover? And how is that going to hold the tube? Is it going to hold it perpendicular? Is it going to hold it horizontally? All those decisions have to be made, and we have to study every little thing. I and mean, that's just one little thing. When, when you think about it, we, we, we discuss when we are making the crowns from the crown manufacturer, what are we going to do about making the consistency of the threading of the crown, the inside crown, how are we going to make it even more consistent so that unscrewing the crown from the case will will uh, be more durable in case there's a shock when when the crown is unscrewed. You know, how are we going to adhere that crown? Well, you're to, saying it makes a lot of sense, actually. Like, like, yeah. and, and you know what? You know, what's happened is we've, we we're studying all these different ways of doing things. You know, could we procure better epoxies to make sure that the white paint doesn't come out of the turning bezel? You know, we, we've come a long way on that. You know, there's different paint companies in the world that, you know, we work with. I mean, there's, you know, BASF. There's a lot of chemical companies in the paint industry. And we have to test different products and see which is best for us. It's, uh, uh, which is which is best for our customer. Do you, do you feel that, I mean, it, it sounds a little bit like what Rolex does because they're also obsessed with tolerances and making things more precise. But do you feel that by and large, there's a lot of competition doing this in the watch industry today? Because it, it, you know, obviously it's it's a luxury industry. They're selling a product. They're they're trying to make it as desirable as possible as opposed to as good as possible. So, do you feel that you are uh, rare in the industry today with a focus on continually wanting to make it a better tool? Well, tell you what it is. And how I've run my life, sometimes you have to ignore what people are doing to the left and to the right of you. I remember in high school, we were reading a book, and it wasn't, uh, it was a book by Farley Mowat, actually, which is a great Canadian author. And 
but the class was told to read a, this book and, you know, write a book report on it. And I remember getting a real bad mark on it. I think it was like a C minus. And I went to the teacher and I said, why did you give me a C minus? I thought I did a really good job. He says, well, you didn't get the moral of the story. And you didn't get, you know, I didn't get a lot of things out of the book. I said, well, maybe I got something different than you did. Maybe what I got out of it is better than, it is more appropriate to what Farley Mowat meant in his writing than you understood. And you know what? I could have been wrong, but it's, if, if I conduct my life in the way that what other people do, I might not do what I do. You know, a lot of, a lot of people are followers. And if I was a follower, I don't think we'd have come up with a lot of things in the industry. And, you know, like Rolex, it's interesting you discuss Rolex because I really have a lot of respect for the Rolex Botch Corporation. I really do. And the way they've handled Tudor, I have a lot of respect for them. I think they are a good company. They're a great company. And you know why? Because they have great teamwork. And, and that's what I want for my company. And that's what I feel we have for our company. So let, let's talk about the current consumer market. I would guess, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would guess that just given all the craziness in the world right now, both large orders as well as individual consumer orders are high for a brand like Marathon that not only is a military supplier, but produces a a truly tough watch for, uh, you know, some people, preparedness, survival, uh, tactical interest. It, it seems like now is a good time uh, for Marathon in terms of business. It's funny you say so. So what's happened, uh, quite literally, you know, so many people speak on social media and people, there's so many of our watches out in public domain that people are suddenly feeling and touching our wristwatches on someone else's wrist or people are reading our reviews or seeing that our they 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 like our product and uh they it's so easy to search on google or any search engine marathon watch and uh they 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 could uh find a genuine marathon watch and buy one online and uh, I think uh, word is out. And uh, actually, this November, I think our sales were up online 200%, over two, actually over 200%. And wow. uh, a forecast, it was 200% of forecast. So, we, we you know, I, I, I believe that business, the best way to work on budgets is worst case scenario. And if something better happens, then fine. You know, people know that we're a liable we're a reliable brand. Our quality is good. We've been around since 1939. We're not going anywhere. And I, I think our, our, our values are, are, are very good. And people like the fact that you know, when you buy a marathon watch, the product is made by people not only who like working for marathon watch, but are compensated appropriately and well. There's not there's people that aren't being taken advantage of. Like, you know, some nations don't have protections for their workers. You know, some people, you know, you know, so unfortunately, you know, some countries people don't even get off for medical leave. I mean, but you know, we have our, our values here and it costs money, yeah. you know, people, you know, there there was, there was something that really bothered me and a few people have said it and I've seen it online, but I don't comment, but I'll tell you something right now. People, you know, it took years to develop the special rubber strap that we developed. Right. It's a great strap, by the way. It's a great strap. Uh, I, I, I thought about it so deeply, how to make it uh, slip resistant. Uh, uh, how to make the buckle? How to make it? How how, how to make it, it? It it works so well with our search and rescue watch line. But also, what if someone has a small wrist? What if someone has a big wrist? 
you know, am I going to be like other brands and say, hey, you know what? Sorry, the watch is too small. We'll sell you a bigger strap, an extra an extra six o'clock strap. No, you don't do that. When someone's in the field, when when a soldier is being issued his watch or a government employee is being issued his watch, he should be able to take it out of the box. And if it's too small, change the strap because we gave him the other piece to make it for a larger, a larger wear. Another thing is we make those products in Switzerland and we pay very you know, we pay fair. We're fair employees. And yes, you can buy product made in China. Good luck. That's fine. And you could buy pay $3.50 for something made of silicone, which stretches, or something that they say is rubber, or it's only partially rubber and filled with other chemicals. But you know what? Our straps are, are, are specified... Uh, I can't remember what the type of rubber it is, but it's um, a specific type of rubber. And I'm sure Kate will be emailing you right now to tell you what it is. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it, the, 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 the actual rubber that we buy to put in these straps and the tooling and the the and the 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 finishing of them and putting the buckle on and 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 guaranteeing that there would be no decay, no UV decay, no saltwater decay, no lactic acid decay, which comes from the human body, it, it is a big thing. And it does cost much money to make. And yes, it is $200, I think, for an 18 millimeter strap and 225 for a 20 millimeter strap kit, which means three straps and a buckle. You know what? You don't have to buy it. You don't have to buy it. You can buy 10 straps from another country, which have been made in some dirty condition from people which are not paid well or paid at all, and and be happy with your decision. But for a good watch, to put on a, a, a crappy strap is unacceptable. And to put people down for making wages, it's like you ex- you can't expect people to do things for nothing. Of course, but in the watch space, it's so difficult for consumers to know whether or not they're paying fair wages or simply padding an investor's profits. It's difficult to well, sell from the outside. that's why you should know the countries you buy from. Okay. Be aware when you buy a product where it's made. You know, I have a friend in the textile industry and, you know, a lot of textiles do come from China and excellent textiles come from China. The the thing is, uh, you know, he's a supplier to some very large uh, department stores in in the world, in the United States especially. And they have to send their products to a lab in Australia for... Uh, I don't know if it's genetic evaluation, but to make sure that it comes from a compliant, you know, uh, TAA compliant uh, section of China or country. Sure. You know, you have to remember, you know, our, our products, we, 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 we not only have chosen to move the manufacturing of not the watches just locally in Le Chaux de Font, but what goes into that watch? I mean, we're working very heavily with Salida Watch Corporation, which is down the street from us. What do they make for us? They make the movements. We work with them on those movements. What we need. We make sure that the best ingredients are used in that engine, meaning the shock absorbers are there, the the hairspring is there, the the testing, the the just even the the finishing the the finishing stems you know uh, it, it, even in our own town we're making cases now you know we're trying to keep things locally in Le Chaudefin which is a very important watch making region not just make products in Switzerland but keep it local and I think that keeping things local we we uh, use a lot of Canadian and American suppliers uh, for uh, different uh, parts of all our instruments, because we, we 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 trust our allies. It's a it's it's a great statement. It's a great. So I want to make an observation. We're we're actually out of time, and the observation is that 
at this phase of the marathon company, you're really looking at corporate culture. You're looking at legacy. You're looking at enduring value of the products. These are things that brand new companies don't obviously have the uh, the luxury of thinking about, but it's so great that at this phase, you're still taking an active approach and making sure that the brand that you inherited and are now obviously putting your life and heart into ends up not only being a better company, but being a better company for all the people that work there and for the people that buy it. It's it's really a holistic approach and it's maybe a little hippy-dippy, but it's actually a, a, a great use of your time and effort with a company that has a great position in the market and you know that business will continue to do well as long as you sort of keep the formula that has allowed you to get to the state that you are now. True. And, and you know what? In our company, helping charity, helping those who can't help themselves is very important. We can't ever forget about that. You know, right now there's food shortages, people with massive inflation where food prices have gone up. You know, it's very important to give to your local food banks. Don't think that people want to go to those food banks. They have to, you know. And we, 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 we you know, we, we should always think about that as a corporation, helping those who can't help themselves. And I think that's an important that's an important part of the marathon legacy. I think it's a very important part. Doing the right thing. Interesting and uh, a great end to this uh, conversation. Um, I encourage everyone to check out the Marathon Watch website, which is marathonwatch.com. This has been uh, an interview with Mitchell Wine, the president of Marathon. Mitchell, thank you so much. Thanks, Ariel. Nice to uh, hear from you and hope to see you again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Superlative Podcast. This show relies on support from you, the audience. Please subscribe, review, and share Superlative with your friends. To get the latest watch news and enthusiast commentary, also listen to the Blog to Watch weekly podcast. For show ideas, comments, or business, please contact us at podcasts at blogtowatch.com.